I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where we're delighted to welcome Rachel Kushner and uh, to talk about her new novel, The Flamethrower, published by Harville Secker. Set partly in 1970s New York and 1940s Italy, the novel explores a number of themes, including art, motorcycle racing and fascism, and was described by James Wood in the New York Review of Books as scintillatingly alive. Rachel's first novel, Telex from Cuba, was published in 2008 and shortlisted for the National Book Award the same year. Her fiction and non-fiction has appeared in a number of publications, including the New York Times, Paris Review, Believer, Art Forum and Book Forum, to name a few. In discussion with Rachel tonight, we're also really pleased to welcome Nina Power, who's Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Roehampton University and the author of One Dimensional Woman, published by Zero. She also regularly contributes to a number of publications, including Freeze, Wire, Radical Philosophy, The Guardian and Cabinet. The discussion will last approximately 30 to 40 minutes, including a reading from Rachel, and there will be time for questions at the end, as usual. There'll also be time to buy the book and have a glass of wine at the end, so please do stick around. With no further ado, please join me in welcoming Rachel Kushner and Nina Power. Thank you. I'll um, okay, well, we're going to begin then with a reading um, from Rachel, and I just wanted to say that although... Um, this is her second novel. The first novel um, wasn't published originally um, in Britain. They've imported some copies. Um, but it will be out in April next year, um, off the back of uh, the amazing success of this uh, novel, which Rachel is now going to read from. Thanks, Nina. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. I know almost no one in London, so it's pretty cool for me that people are here. An old friend from San Francisco is here. Uh, thank you, Claire. Thanks to the London Review Bookshop for hosting me. And, of course, Nina. Uh, yeah, I'll just read a very short passage from this book. I get bored when people give you a really long description for the context so you understand what they're going to read. So I'm just going to skip that totally. <laughs> <clears throat> Save your freedom for a rainy day. It was still there on the wall of the women's room at Rudy's. Oh, I forgot to ask. Can everybody hear okay in the back? Okay. That's another thing. I hate it when I'm at a reading and you act like you're really engaged, but you only can hear about half the things the author is saying. Sorry, I'll start over. Save your freedom for a rainy day. 
It was still there on the wall of the women's room at Rudy's. Also, long live the king. Who? Leroy. Roy who? Roy G. Biv. Fucker owes me money. On another wall, looking for an enemy, tall, slim, ruthless, with a sense of humor. So how do we find each other? Someone had written underneath in big, hasty block letters. I went to rejoin Giddle and Sandro, who were probably stiffly awaiting my return, having exactly nothing in common but me. I felt a hand on my shoulder and turned around. It was Ronnie. He was wearing mirrored aviator glasses. He smiled, and I saw that his front tooth was chipped. What happened to your tooth? He ignored the question, which was very Ronnie. Ronnie, you look like a Nuremberg defendant in those glasses, Sandro said, motioning to the waitress. Could we have four Slivovitz? And what happened to your tooth? I was riding a mechanical bull. Oh, shit, Saul is here. You went to Texas, Giddle said. Is that what they really do there? Ride mechanical bulls? Ronnie ignored her. He and Sandro both had little patience for Giddle, less than she seemed to have for them. Skip the bull, Sandro said. Ha ha. Tell us about the trip. Ronnie had gone to visit the artist Saul Opler in Port Arthur. It was a disaster. I shouldn't have gone. But he called me up one night sounding desperate. 3 a.m. and he's complaining bitterly about how much he hates Port Arthur. He's stuck down there for some kind of family stuff and whines that he misses his pet rabbits, which he'd left under the care of a New York assistant and blah, blah, blah. Saul, I said, do you want me to get those rabbits and bring them down to you? Would you like me to do that? Gosh, Ronnie, he says, I don't want to put you out, but the truth is... It would mean so much to me if you were able to do that. You could take my Jaguar. I thought, why the hell not? Uh Uh-oh, Sandro said. I left that same night. I'd never driven an E-type Jaguar before. Is there a wind passing by? (laughs) Or is that just... I swear I'm not panting or anything. (laughs) I left that same night. I had never driven an E-type Jaguar before, and I had to stop and get different shoes because my goddamn sneakers were too bulky or puffy or something to handle the tight little Jaguar pedals. Twice I almost drove off the road because I couldn't get to the brake adequately. The pedals on that car were so close together they were designed for, like, Italian driving moccasins. You know, really supple kidskin leather. Buttery little shoes that barely have a sole, just a faint slip of leather, so you can... (laughs) Is it just me, or is that wind kind of distracting? Do you want to try my mic? You could try my mic. Well, maybe (laughs) if we turn one of them off. Is there, like, an audio person here who's in charge of this? They've all left. It's just us. (laughs) Let's trash this place. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, maybe that maybe that stopped it. Yeah. Okay, I'm really sorry, everyone. That's all right. 
bird right on the glass. Try that. How's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe that's better. Sorry. Buttery little shoes that barely have a sole, just a faint slip of leather, so you can feel every nuance of the accelerator and clutch. Professional dance slippers would have been best. I couldn't find any of those, nothing even close. I was at a truck stop in Maryland. They had keychains with crabs and sunglasses, stun guns, packages of tube socks, which everyone knows are for the truckers for no-mess masturbation while driving. They didn't have any Italian shoes. I bought women's bedroom slippers, deer foam, size 13. After I slit the heel, they fit me perfect. I was ripping down I-85 in Oppler's E-Type with his rabbits in the back, wearing my deer foams, and somehow managed not to get pulled over. I felt like Mario Andretti. I understand that Reno here set a record and dazzled the Italians, but let's not forget Ronnie's death race through Texas, wasting people like the two fruitcakes in a souped-up Monte Carlo who tried to overtake me. Later, I almost hit an armadillo. I drove all night got to Port Arthur in the late afternoon. Horrible place, by the way. Big squat refineries, air that smells of burning tires, snakes dangling from the trees, trying to stay cool, I guess, and dead ones, flat paddles of jerky fused to the road. In the middle of the gravel drive into the property was a giant lizard eating a baguette, one of those really cheap and fluffy grocery store baguettes. Sickening this lizard tearing off hunks of bread and devouring them. I park, and Oppler comes out of his studio and starts limping toward the car. I guess his leg was asleep or something. He's calling to those rabbits like they know their names and are going to be happy to see him. I'm thinking, isn't he amazed by how quickly I got here? Isn't he going to at least mention it? I was redlining his Jaguar. I pissed in a Dr. Pepper bottle. When it was full... I pissed in a potato chips bag. I know you call those crisps. (laughs) I broke the law, gave up a night's sleep, forwent the tube socks at the truck stop. Incredible self-control, Sandro said. All in the name of doing Saul a favor. I mean, you try to help a person. He opens the car door and leans in the back and makes this sound, a wailing, high-pitched. Oh, no, Sandro said, and put his hands over his face, feigning a brace for disaster. Yeah, that's right. Those goddamn rabbits were dead. You forgot to check on them. My job was transport, and I didn't hear any complaints from back there. But I had the windows down, and there was a lot of truck traffic, especially on the 10. I don't know what happened. They just died. That's why you're wearing those sunglasses, Sandro said. The guilt is doing you in. Did you give them any water, Ronnie? No, I didn't give them any water. Listen, if he wanted a night nurse, he should have called one. He called me. And there I was in this hellacious armpit of the gulf, and Saul is not speaking to me. He refuses to come out of his living quarters. He's got these black drag queens working around the property, feeding chickens, running his tea tray. They looked like football players, local Texas high school football players in nightgowns, Biddy and Pumpkin Ray. They don't serve me any tea, just dirty looks for killing Saul's rabbits. I figured I'd get a quick night's catch-up and leave at the crack of dawn, 
put his car back, and pretend the whole thing never happened. I was in the guest cottage and had to listen to birds screeching and chirping all night. Apparently, it was mating season for something called the oven bird. All night long, I heard this, teacher, 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 teacher. I was fantasizing about calling the sheriff and getting these oven birds hauled away in a paddy wagon. I got up in the morning, shook the scorpions out of my boots, opened the cottage door, and there was a rooster staring me down. It was tall. I could tell what it was thinking. You're my size. An unusually tall rooster, and it would not let me pass. It lunged, and all I could do to save myself was grab something from a nearby lumber pile and swing. I ended up having to go for broke, double down. Thing just would not let up. Saul came out in his pajamas. Didn't say a word. Just picked up the dead rooster and started plucking. Then he lit barbecue coals. All very methodical, as if it had been in the plans from the beginning that I kill this rooster and we eat it. And that's what we did. I killed it. He cooked it. We ate it. Seemed like he wasn't mad at me anymore. Thing tasted like rubber bands. I'll stop there. Right, okay. I get to ask you some questions now. Um, I don't know how many people have actually read the novel, so I don't want to ruin... I mean, I imagine quite a lot of you have by now, right? But I don't want to ruin the plot for those of you who haven't. So um, my questions are going to be more general questions, really, not, not telling you what happens um, to, to Reno or anything, who is the, the main character. Um, okay, I mean, I guess maybe just start off a little bit about the reception of your novel, which has been um, quite astounding, really. Uh, you've sort of sparked debates about realism, about artifice, um, about storytelling, one of which you, you told in a meta-storytelling way, um, and also really about about the great American novel, which, um, I don't know, I mean, is, an, is a kind of curious phrase. I'm not sure in the British literary scene whether there's much kind of love for this phrase or what it really means. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the great things about your book is this idea of expansiveness and this relationship between speed and freedom, um, and the role of the kind of uh, the motorcycle, uh, the, these kind of areas in the west of, uh, of America, which are just these kind of vast expanses, but also how that plays out in terms of um, a vision of art, so the relationship mm. between land art and the kind of the land speed records, and this kind of, um, I don't know, yeah, the relationship between kind of speed and, and geography, really. Um, and it's kind of interesting how that, that debate has sort of been playing out in your American reception, let's say. Um, a lot of the reviews, although they're very positive, often have the, seem slightly scared at the same time and, and maybe even a little bit pissed off with you. Like, how dare she write this, this novel? How dare she write something that is this ambitious and you know, that has these kind of uh, pretensions to the great American novel? Not that you say that, but that they, they are putting it in this discussion. And I wonder if you have any feelings about this phrase, the great American novel, and where you would position yourself in this critical reception, or whether you want no part of it. <laughs> well, we've covered a lot of ground already. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, that was like 12 questions. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, I mean, ab about... Um, I don't generally enter the fray of the critical reception of my own 
work. Uh, it's Very just wise. An, an instinct. I think that you know books are for readers, and um, that's when readers get to have their say. And you put a book in the world, and um, it starts to travel. And if you're lucky, a lot of people read it, and um, and then they get to have a conversation about it. And anything you say at that point about other people's reaction to your book is by structure defensive, and it will seem defensive, I think. I, I mean, everybody does things differently, so that's not a moral judgment on any other writer. But um, I've also found that if you remain quiet, other people speak up and say things that you might have said, but it would come out completely different uh, if I said them. But, yeah, so I don't enter um, any of that. But actually, no one has said anything that would be what I would say. I don't know what I'd say. I'm not objective on the matter, and... Um, Books open themselves to a lot of different kinds of projection uh, that's just not there when the writer is writing. You know, you're alone with your ideas and your work for a long, long time. And um, for me, what I set out to do um, is to write the book that I can write um, that is appropriate to me and that hopefully will um, open out into spaces uh, into which I can kind of insert my sensibility, like my real, true character as a person and the kinds of things um, in which I have an organic interest and have picked up knowledge just over the years through life. And that's what this book is. It's very different than my first book, um, which is very research-driven because I wanted to understand national liberation movements of the 20th century, basically, and this book uh, is much more just things that I care about. Um, art, contemporary art, I'd written about for a long time. I was always interested in the land artists. Um, I know a lot about motorcycles because I used to ride and work on them and race them. And this Italy stuff in the book, there's a component of um, what's called the movement of 77 in Italy. And um, I just fell into that through knowing people who are involved in uh, kind of 20th century continental philosophy because a lot of people are interested in the theoretical underpinnings of the Italian movement. And I go to Italy a lot, and I started asking people about it. And um, everybody there, it turned out, had been involved and had a story. Um, about the... Getting to the last part of it. About the... Uh, the Great American Novel. I don't know. I'm tempted to say I never heard that phrase before about a month ago. Um, I mean, it rings a vague bell. Um, but mostly, I think of it as sort of like um, there's a character. I actually can't remember his name now because I read it so long ago. But it's one of my favorite novels, The Recognitions, by William Gaddis. Um, one of the, the character who goes to Panama um, you know, he's like this really sad, hilarious character who wants to be a writer, and he's very self-conscious about wanting to be good and wanting to be revered, um, which is not really the first problem that you want to tackle uh, when you are trying to learn how to write. And I think of that and this, I, this kind of the young man's burden of having to write the great American novel. I mean, it just sounds like a pain in the ass if you have to check that box um, so I don't really know what it is, but I imagine maybe it has something to do with Melville or with Thomas Wolfe, Le Comorne Angel, um, which, you know, was a book of my parents' generation that they encouraged me to read when I was young. Um, and it's a pretty good novel if it has kind of an odd style. But well, I never set out to write a great American anything um, or even really a novel. I was interested in being a writer 
And the, the novel, it turns out for me, has become a space in which there's energy and life, and I feel like I can play there. Um, but the phrase, I don't know, now as I'm talking about it, maybe to me, the great American novel is not really even about what people inadvertently, um, in a kind of expansionist way, call America, when in fact it's merely the United States of America. If you want to get technical geographically and historically, it's the Americas. So a recent great American novel could be 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, or maybe, sorry, my feet are coming out, or maybe Savage Detectives. Um, I guess people think of it as an ambitious, expansive sort of novel, and I like to read those, but um, yeah, but there was no intention to do anything uh, under that under that <laughs> calling. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess just this point about a kind of um, openness. I mean, you just said there about you know it's not so much about the novel as genre, but about writing, and, and the novel happened to be you know, the form in which, you know, the, the kind of openness that you wanted from writing um, could happen. And, and I've, I've read you saying that in a few interviews, and it's, it's kind of, it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of the, the discussion of the politics, I mean, the politics that happens in the book, the action, is if you know what, you know, about things like auto-reduction and things like that, and you've read the kind of theory and the politics, uh, or situationist slogans, for example, are shouted at various points, you know, you, you've, but you've got this kind of uh, way of making them alive, which you know maybe doesn't happen so much if you're reading a kind of second-hand academic account of like you know the years of lead or you know what happened yeah. in Italy in the 70s. Um, and I wonder, I I know you said you didn't do too much research for this novel compared to the first one, yeah. um, and that actually it's guided maybe more by a series of images. You spoke in one of, inter- of your interviews about um, like flashes. Yeah. You know, and you had these kind of photographs that you worked from, um, and I wonder how you you kind of approach sort of combining all of this material because it's an incredibly wide ranging novel. You know, it's like over a hundred years, all these different countries, all these different characters. You have uh, you know protagonist who's written in the first per- per- person, which you've spoken interestingly about why you want to write in the first person rather than the third person, but she's a strange. Uh, character in the sense that you you get to see her perceptions. You've spoken about her as a kind of uh, a, a way of trying to bind the reader to her to her perceptions. You know, so she doesn't lead the the narrative. She's watching most of the time. She's a kind of vector, or you know, things happen to her. She finds yeah. herself in these situations. Um, and I guess I wonder about how you could you say a little bit about how you combine all these things together? You know, so it doesn't feel forced, so that the research doesn't feel like it's you know being kind of uh, faintly fictionalised or something like that, and maybe about the guiding role of the images that you had, like which particular images from films or photos that you had in your mind? I just go to the library and I cut out different parts of the encyclopedia (laughs) and I glue it all together. Don't they tell you off for doing that? (laughs) I'm joking. No, I I don't know. It's a mysterious process. I mean, um, I I think um, I'm more free to focus on finding the design of the book when I'm working with material that's familiar to me. Um, And that's kind of the key. And not just familiar, but interesting to me. Like, I'm not a really a very autobiographical writer, because that is material that's in the category of 
familiar, but not that interesting, and maybe even like a little radioactive or something. Uh, but if there's material that I can relate to and have built an interest in as you know a young adult, like I was drawing upon things that I've been reading about, you know, since my twenties, like the 1970s art world, um, then I'm free to put more of my energy into, I don't know, just like letting material form a kind of pattern. And it's not just plot for me that forms the pattern. I I mean, I, I don't obviously dispense with plot. The book has a story, but I find that a little bit of plot goes a long way. Um, at least for me, and maybe my book is not, you know, to everyone's taste for that reason, but I find if you have a story and you're moving people forward, then you can kind of pause and, um, you know, do a a full scene of something that's a little more indulgent, maybe. Um, But I guess it is a book that is just happening on a broader scale. Like, I was thinking about, I don't know, I mean, the 1970s is the death of the industrial age, and um, there obviously is a theme to some degree of motorcycles in the book. And so I was interested in the fetishization of speed at the beginning of the century because that mm-hmm. you know, is an idea of the avant-garde and my book deals with contemporary art and all that is always referring back to a vanguard logic. So all these things just started to meld together. And then when I picked the factory, um, this my fictional Valera's, I realized they would have gone through World War II and could have potentially capitalized on the fact that there was a rubber shortage after Japan invaded Malaysia. Um, and so then I sent him to Brazil, and suddenly I was in this weirdly familiar territory because I had written a book uh, that has you know sort of like colonial scenes on a sugarcane plantation. And so I thought, well, just do one full scene like that um, and keep going. Um, and then the Valera plant makes its way into the 1970s and I was about three quarters of the way through the book when I started um, dealing with the Italian material and I know a lot about autonomia but I didn't know a ton about the red brigades that's I I know about the kidnapping of Aldo Moro people don't know the red brigades kidnapped him in 1978 uh, and then eventually ended up murdering him he was the former prime minister of Italy and the head of the Christian Democratic Party so it was a pretty big deal and it was sort of you know the end of the leftist era uh, in Italy and the kind of um, the preliminary moment to the long period of the Berlusconi 1980s. In any case, I'd never really known much about the Red Brigades, but I started reading about them. And uh, they got their start in the Pirelli tire factories on the assembly line. So that seemed neat because I already had um, a rubber company in my novel. So there I was. I had thought maybe we would get to factory politics, but I certainly didn't have any kind of a list because all of the writing for me um, is in the tone and the energy and the frequency of the narration and the language that I use. So Mm -hmm. it's just a long process, sometimes with occasional bits of luck in it. Yeah, I mean, I think the way you hold open this kind of um, idea of contingency and things sort of merely happening and people being caught up in events, you know, kind of beyond their control in a way, um, is, is really impressively done and it's quite well balanced in the novel, I guess. It's yes. that kind of relationship between, you know, hi- history, fiction, character, you, you know, and these, and these sort of real events and then these kind of fictional but plausible things as well. And I guess this is what James Wood was going on about the kind of the high level of, 
you know, uh, reality um, in his review, which he seemed to think was really uh, important. Um, but I, I came across this uh, really interesting quote from you, actually, in a, um, an interview from June of this year um, for um, an online thing, I guess, called The Millions. I don't know if it's a real print thing as yeah, well. Yeah, I think it's just online. Okay, it's online. Because um, I was thinking a lot about how you related, let's say, what was happening with the Red Brigades, what was happening in Italy in the 70s, with a kind of land art, which, you know, on the face of it doesn't particularly have, you know, too much in common, or, you know, the art world of New York in the 70s and this kind of post-industrial era, era <laughs> where, um, you know, people are taking over these lofts in, in the meatpacking district and all of these kinds of things. Um, and how you kind of play off the balance between the art and the politics and whether there is a politics of the art. Because you start off by looking at futurism and then, you know, as you say, you know, this kind of avant-garde obsession with kind of speed and war and dynamism, movement, um, and how that kind of filters across the century, really. Um, and I just want to read you this quote and, and uh, see if you have any comment on it. Uh, maybe this is enough. You say, I think it's unfair to compare the stakes of art and the stakes of protest... The implication is that art is sillier, that the stakes are about ego and money and hierarchies, but we are not choosing between a world without exploitation and a world without culture. They are not in direct competition with each other. And I, I just really like that quote, that we're not choosing between a world without exploitation and a world without culture, because I think that opposition, you know, if you're talking about politics, then somehow it's serious. And if you're talking about art and culture, and then somehow it's kind of, you know, frivolous, bourgeois or whatever... You know, and, and you get that kind of seriousness in the sort of militant red brigades, you know, these people who sort of sit around with guns all day, you know, talking about who they're going to kidnap and kill next. And, you know, this really happened in a way. You know, you fictionalise yeah. it, but it's, it was real, right? And I, I want maybe to push you a little bit on the, you know, what this world without exploitation and, you know, without culture, you know, what it would mean to not choose between those two, you know. What were the kind of... Um, the vision that sort of conjured up in your novel of this balance, right. even if it sort of fails a little bit, you know, because history fails sometimes, but not always. Are you saying the, com <laughs> the compelling aesthetics of the Red Brigades or the solution? I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe just... It's a difficult uh, question, I guess, but, you know, I just like the, the very bold way you said that, you know, like we don't have to choose politics or culture. Like, you know, the, the end result wouldn't... You know, that's not what we would want to do. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just sort of occurred to me because I've been asked that a lot. And, you know, in the past, for whatever reason, for the past 10 years, I end up thinking a lot about the aesthetics of politics and the politics of aesthetics. And everyone's talking all about this. And we all know, you know, that the aesthetics of politics is bad. And the politics <laughs> of aesthetics is good. Right? Um, but with this book, you know, I have an art world and I have a political world, and um, I I did not uh, preference one over the other in my mind as I was working on them, and I didn't really think of the artists as silly. And sometimes people have asked about that, and um, and I don't mean to sound accusatory or anything, but it has made me wonder if th people who are not involved in contemporary art or don't really care about it sometimes think that it's frivolous. Um, or that it's a kind of emperor's new clothes thing. Um, and I don't believe that at all. Um, I get a lot of energy from the art world. It's a discourse, and it's filled with ideas. And it does have a whole money component that the literary world does not have. Um, but that doesn't totally poison it in terms of, you know, a kind of earnestness and a set of ideas and a rich history to it. 
So I, I didn't, I by no means meant to offset them from each other in such a way that the reader would be drawn uh, to a conclusion that, you know, the political milieu is what's really at stake in this book. Um, but there are people who have felt that way, like, I won't name him, but I, uh, I have an uncle who, well, I guess he's a very unreconstructed Marxist, and he, he called me and he was very, very grave, and he wrote me also like a 10-page letter about the book. <laughs> And um, he said, you know, when she goes to Italy and meets these people in this autonomous department, she has a chance to join something with meaning. And then you send her back to New York with those shits. (laughs) Um, Kind of agree with your uncle. (laughs) You've probably been on panels together at historical materialism. Um, But, uh, you know, his perspective is very different than my own, and I just didn't think about them hierarchically. And then when I I remember being asked that question for that interview, and um, I do think that those things are not in competition. Um, It's okay to have an art world, um, and it's okay to have people that are totally engagé and um, are committed to something else. I hope that answers the question. Absolutely. Um, I guess just a couple of final things before we open up. I mean, the the novel is obviously called The Flamethrowers, and and this refers in one sense to um, particular um, sort of military uh, operation or, you know, action of uh, kind of using these awkward uh, flamethrowers whilst wearing this asbestos-type outfit um, and actually how vulnerable these people are. And it's a, But there's also this kind of ongoing theme of um, fire throughout the book, and you have the kind of the Latin phrase... Um, and that refers to this, but I really I I wondered about the the fire theme because it struck me reading it, and this maybe refers to a kind of cinematic context as well. That actually this is a book really more about um, neon and neon lights rather oh. than fire. Yeah, but because neon turns up maybe more than fire does. Like there's a neon sign in like almost every kind of scene, especially in the New York scenes where she moves in everywhere and right. you know. And I just wondered maybe if you could talk about the relationship between fire and neon, if that makes any sense. Wow. Uh, No, it's good. I like that. Um, Well, you know, I mean, neon, I guess it turns up partly because, um, uh, well, I think there's a, in Marinetti's, in one of the things he wrote, there's a really beautiful phrase about neon being um, the jewelry of the night city, the nocturnal city, the jewelry of it. Of course, that's a kind of, you know, um, corny, corny, corporeal city because it's obviously the body of a woman if it has that kind of adornment to it but then in 1970s New York you just see a lot of neon the city was very adorned and um, I did a Times Square scene in my book because I thought it would be fun Um, and I don't know DeLillo has a really great Times Square scene in Underworld and I just thought it's my turn to do a Times Square scene Um, and there just is a lot of neon and I like the way that you lose perspective like the movie um, Midnight Cowboy it's just like all kind of stacked up on top you know and it's very glamorous but obviously his life isn't in the film Um, so I had started with this futurism and there's a kind of um, fetishization of neon by the character Valera in the early part of the book and then um, she describes neon as beautiful and I think it is beautiful Um, the fire thing is I guess early and late there's a Mm -hmm. reference to flamethrowers in the beginning and there are there's a long reference by character Sandro to flamethrowers at the end. 
of the book. Um, after I'd written it, I added to the front of the book this epigraph, Fakut Ardeat, which is from this Christian hymn, the Stabat Mater, and it's um, you know uh, a phrase that it technically means made to burn, but it's Fakut Ardeat. Um, I'm a little nervous, so I forgot it. In Varla Amen Christendeum, it's um, to burn uh, in the love of God, and it's about, uh, in the heart of God, and it's about um, Mary's grief over the loss of her son. And I uh, had been visiting some friends in Italy um, while I was working on the book, and above the fireplace was that phrase, Fac ut ardeat, made to burn. And the fireplace is where you put wood. Ha ha. Uh. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But the, the, the person whose house it was um, is a good friend. He's a Marxist professor and... His mother uh, had been a fascist judge in Milan, and um, this house is in Lake Como, and she was a great believer in Gabrielle D'Annunzio. And so I was just very interested in all of this because it relates to a lot of what my book is about. So I just started thinking about it more and more and Made to Burn and the Flamethrowers because they they aren't just cumbersome um, and offense offensive like on the offense. They uh, they're a really bad public relations problem for a country. <laughs> so I think that's why the United States um, phased them out because it's just such a terrible thing to do to people. Squirt liquid fire at them. You know, they're drones. I mean, there are cleaner ways to do that. Um, so that interested me also, but it wasn't really very overdetermined, you know. Like when you write a novel, you're going with the flow. A lot of it's instinctual. I mean, it's maybe it's kind of a cop out to hear writers say this, but the unconscious structures so much of what I do. And in the instinct, when I make a decision, I let it, you know, I, I make it and I let it hold. And it's only afterward that I can see that there was a real logic to it but I'm not determining that in like an analytical and conscious way oh this fits together with that it just sort of happens okay um well I might just use my abuse my privilege and ask you um if you could talk a little bit about what you might work on next because I there's some hints in some interviews um you said you want to write something about uh, the contemporary United States race prison and present day cruelties 
And I, I said that? You did, you did, yeah. <laughs> and I, then, you said, then you also said in another interview that you wanted to write a novel about uh, warehoused and forgotten people, people who are all women, women who would love to get their hands on guns and might deservedly turn them on you and me when they finally get the chance. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's all true. <laughs> so um, without giving too much away, if you, if, do you have any kind of idea of where you might go next? I know you've only just got this book out, so maybe it's yeah. a very no, unfair No, she question, just read it, though. That I, I, <laughs> I am working on a novel, and it is about exactly all those things. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. This novel was filled with men who talk, and uh, the next novel is the women's turn to talk. I guess. Okay. But also it's a contemporary novel, and I haven't written a contemporary novel yet. But it's kind of about tomorrow. Somebody said something about me as a writer for the hard times to come. Uh, it was like a, one of the blurbs on my book. So the next book is about the hard times to come. See, I have, I have a fantasy that you should have... It, it should really be is. ...about the 90s, because then it would be 50s, 70s, 90s. And I think the 90s is a very difficult decade to write about. But anyway, yeah. you can well, write what you like. <laughs> it relates to the 90s. I mean, I'm interested in like the total crisis of neoliberalism, and okay. 90s is just the build-up to that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, all right, um, I guess we, we'll open it to um, questions. It's, uh, yeah, it's like 10 to 8, so we're supposed to do that. And this lovely um, person here will, will uh, take your questions. <laughs> oh, there we go. Sorry. It's finally working. Any, anyone? Don't be shy. <laughs> we just need one to get us going. Thank you. Thank you for asking a first question. Hi. Hi. Um, you write very perceptively about art, and I wondered if you'd ever produce any artwork of your own. If I ever have? Yeah. Um... <laughs> No, I don't think of myself as an artist, you know. I mean, like all people I drew when I was a child. It's so funny when artists say that. I've been drawing since I was a child. And you're like, <laughs> we all drew. <laughs> um, but uh, no, um, there's a filmmaker that I might collaborate with, actually. And I never thought about doing something like that. Um, but um, he wrote to me having read my book. And um, he's somebody whose work I've been obsessed with for years and years. So um, maybe at some point we'll make something together, but I don't know what form it will take. I always really admired uh, the films that Marguerite Duras made. I just thought it's so cool to be a novelist and just have a bunch of glamorous friends come over to your chateau. Um, <laughs> And turn on the camera and then write a different script as a kind of, you know, sound narration. And I, I can't think of another writer who did something like that. And I, I don't think I have that kind of imagination. But I admire her greatly, just as an example of a writer who made stuff. But, no, I just like listening to the way artists talk and then making up fake ones and um, giving them things to say. So... Do you think anyone will make a film of the uh, flamethrowers? I mean, obviously a lot of the reviewers have talked about its cinematic qualities. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, somebody um, has purchased that option, but uh, who knows if they'll actually make a film out of it or not. Or, or they'll, you know, maybe they'll take some part of it or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of interest in, you know, the work 
becoming uh, another genre of work. Mm -hmm. It's just, for me, it's very hard to think of it as anything but the novel that I wrote. There's a question back there. Um, I just I wondered like how much this is maybe a bit of a personal question but how much sort of confidence or self-doubt you have when you're writing uh, do you sort of know when something's good and enjoy writing it or do you sort of doubt whether it's good as you're going right and that's a really important thing I think I mean I would almost consider it a craft question even if it's a personal question um I know. I mean, for better or worse, I know when it isn't good, um, which is a very useful tool. But it's not that fun because um, it's hard to fool yourself when that's happening. But I, I just endure. I just power through those kind of dreary days when there isn't that much energy in the writing, um, and I wait for it to be fun. And then once in a while, it is fun. Um, and when there's pleasure in it. I think I might be doing something right. And I, th- I think I might be doing something right, not simply because of the pleasure, but when there's pleasure in it, I've hit some kind of frequency. And inside that frequency, the technical problems that I normally have fall away. And I think that's true for a lot of writers. Um, you just stop having these very basic kinds of problems um, of just how to even deal with time and move people through space and what language to choose. Um, but that doesn't happen every day, you know. Um, I work really hard. I work every day, all day long. I think I have a sort of strangely... I was always a very good student, but I have... This is personal, but I don't mind. I'll share it. Um, I was always a very good student, but I have this strangely remedial idea about myself, like that I have to work harder than other people. Um, and I think it's useful to be now I'm boasting about my humility <laughs> That's a humble but uh, <laughs> it is useful to be really humble about your writing um, because there's no reason to to rush it you know so but then again what you're up against ultimately is just the limitations of your real quality and the quality of your thinking and there's really no getting around that <laughs> I think there was another question back there. Yes, thank you very much. You, you've probably answered it in your own unique way uh, with the answer to the question before. But we've talked a lot about what your book is about or might be about. But actually what really struck me reading it was what you write and your language and also how you actually make the book by being inside the heads of all of these characters who start on a story like the one you read about the rabbits and it goes on for pages and pages and pages and you're suddenly transported to another place and into the head of another character. And I just thought this was phenomenal. And we're hearing you speak now, and I'm wondering, how do you get these... How do you get the language? Are you listening? Are you taking down notes in toilets and scribbling down the graffiti? Or are you genuinely just thinking up these people and then just inhabiting and giving them all their crazy characteristics? Oh, thanks. That's a nice question. Um... I am scribbling and taking notes all the time, but it's somehow not the actual graffiti and the things people say. It's like, um, well, you know about the multiverse? Like, there's another universe just like this one? Um, it's like the, they'll say something, and it'll make me think of something that they might have said, and then I write down 
that thing. Um, and I do kind of collect a lot of those things. But I've noticed once in a while, like when I've lost a notebook, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Because uh, when I go to write the actual, you know, when I'm at my desk writing, um, it will come back to me if, if it somehow is uh, useful. And I, I will have written it down, but I won't need um, to look at the note. But about the dialogue, I mean, I think it, and it was pressured in a certain way that was useful for me with this book formally because it's told in the first person. So whenever you're inside anyone else's head, um, it's because they're performing themselves um, through speech. And so I, it was just a fun task for me to let people go and go and go. And it was a way of allowing stories to kind of bloom or unfold um, within other stories and have the narrator be totally absent sometimes even for like 30 or 40 pages and I just sort of wanted to see what would happen because it just seemed like a fun challenge for me and for the reader maybe but hopefully not too much a one Um, so the narrator is referred to by a, as an, uh, by a nickname the whole time, um, and obviously the sense of discovery and identity is a part of it, but what was your intention in giving that character that sense of anonymity? Yeah, well, she actually, she's unnamed in the well, novel. Exactly. Everyone um, but, calls her Reno in reviews, but she's not actually called that. Right. And that really gets me every time I read a review, but... Well, but. you know, it's like it's hard to package a book that has an unnamed narrator, um, and I think because she's a woman, I mean, Scribner, my publisher in the United States, wanted, uh, I don't know, they wanted, you know, to put some emphasis in the description of the book on the back uh, as a journey of a character and an in individual um, and give her a personality. And when you're reading a book, you feel like you're with, hopefully, in this case, or generally, you're with that character because you're in their thoughts. Like, I'm really interested in trying to write in a way that can give a reader the experience of what it's like to be in someone else's mind. Um, her name was not important for that. I don't think about my name. I mean, your name, I don't believe you can name yourself. I think your name comes from outside of you. Um, and like many other things that come from outside of you, I didn't think that the name was important for her because she's very much inside of her perceptions. And I wanted the reader to be um, right up next to those perceptions and like giving her a name would be sort of like giving her a set of physical characteristics and it's more of a trapping that you find with a third person and there are many great novels that have been written in the third person but they smell more fictiony to me sometimes um, you just know that the author is building this fake person and then set um, sending them through a series of events and of course I did that too but somehow not naming her allowed me to emphasize her in the world, in experience, rather than falling back upon uh, any more conventional ideas about her psychology or her being this way because she'd experienced that traumatic event from her childhood, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I, just, she, I think she just didn't need one. But then um, reviewers need one. So that, but that's fine. She gets referred to Reno, I think, twice in the book. Uh, 
Um, I thought it was interesting the way you were saying that you don't see the, the politics and the aesthetics hierarchically, um, but rather um, on separate and separate planes or in separate fields. Um, and when I was reading it, I thought that Reno seemed in many ways receptive to both the political experiences in Italy and also the artistic experiences in Soho in the 70s. And so I was just wondering what to what extension Reno's as being a, a passive receptor of experience and not necessarily imposing a political will or view on things was an extension of your own perspective. Wait, can you repeat that last part? I just, let's, um, so just to what, to what extent outside. her being a receptor to experience and, and like not necessarily imposing her political will or view on the experiences around her, like she reports a lot of things indirectly and she, um, she doesn't like, she sees events through in an aestheticizing way, um, to what extent that's an extension of your own perspective as well? Uh, to what extent? To, uh, Reno's perspective in the novel is, I mean, how far is that, is that you writing in, in your own way? In your oh, own is place? that my perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah um, well, it's an interesting question to think about. I haven't been asked that question before. Um, I didn't see her job as to act. I mean, it's classically the job of a protagonist in a novel to act, right? Um, but because of her age and because of the way that I constructed the book as a story about a woman who encounters these worlds and interprets them for the reader, um, if she were to act, she wouldn't be, I don't think, as good of an interpreter of what she encounters around her. Her job is to describe other people acting um, and to report to us on what they say and do. And I find personally just in life that um, when you're quiet and you observe, you learn things about other people. Um, and that's the kind of character that I wanted to make for the book. When she goes to Italy in the second half of the book, she encounters uh, I guess two milieu that are very unfamiliar to her. And one is sort of aristocratic lineage that funds the art career of her boyfriend. And she's not going to learn anything about that world um, if she stands up to the boyfriend's mother and says, you're being rude to me and storms off and leaves or anything like that. She's just subjecting herself um, to these people, which is how we get to see them uh, in their fullness. And then she ends up in Rome among the autonomous. But this is an incredibly nuanced milieu that had a lot of shades to it. And an American girl from New who'd been living in New York is going to have almost no idea what's going on there. Um, I know a certain amount about it, but it wasn't a tell, you know, an explainy kind of book that was going to tell you all about autonomy. If people want to learn about it um, now, there are a lot of things they can read. Um, I wanted a character who was just going to sort of encounter that and. Um, Cathect to whatever parts of it seemed um, clear to her that she could read, but it was also fun for me to know a lot more about it and to have to withhold that knowledge because I, you know, was bounded into the thoughts of a character who didn't know very much. I mean, in terms of her passivity and not acting, I don't extend that um, to myself, really. Um, I'm I probably have a lot more political opinions than that narrator does. And I don't know if you have access to my CIA file. It's, there's probably something in there. Uh, because I was a young person once, and I am still involved in politics right now, in fact. <laughs> Just kidding. 
I thought there was this great line just briefly in one of the interviews where you said um, to have all the agency can be tragic, you know, in defending this idea of this kind of more passive um, narrator. I thought that was a, a, like a, just a very acute um, line about, you know, not having this kind of protagonist to whom, you know, everything has to be controlled and like directed. Anyway. I guess I was thinking of people in real life too, though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a question way in the back. I think I meant FBI file. They don't have CIA files on Americans, right? I mean, maybe they do, but... They've got the NSA. Who cares? Right. Fine. Hi. Um, I am really a long way at the back, and I can't see you, and I haven't read the book, and I haven't read your other book, and I came because it sounded like an interesting talk, um, and I've learned that maybe I'm a historical materialist. So that's, that's fun. Wikipedia's great, right? Um, I just was really... I suppose I'm interested that it is such a sweeping narrative because, obviously... Well, obviously, w- women who write are often kind of told that, you know, they write... They don't write about sweeping things. They focus much too much on, you know, the domestic and not on the bigger questions. And so... And now, having heard you answer that other question, since I haven't read the book, it's interesting this mix of you apparently having written about a very sweeping period of time and very important and historically significant events, but also having created this protagonist who doesn't have the agency. And I think that's a very interesting-sounding tension. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about... You said that your your publishers were keen to kind of make it very much about, you know, a journey that happens, have to start in films, that's what, you know... Sells. Do you think that's also because you're a woman that they needed you? They needed to package the book in a way that was like, yes, this is about this young girl's journey or young woman's journey of discovery. So that was the very last bit was a question. Do you think it's because you're a woman that they had to package it in that way? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't mean to imply that, and um, I was only referring to my American publisher because um, my wonderful British publisher is here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and my American publisher is great too. And in fact, I help them write. All authors uh, basically write the um, jacket copy on their own books. I don't know if anybody doesn't realize that, but um, you get a pass at it. But I really, you know, they had added that part in, and they need to sell books. Um, I didn't look at that as something that they'd done to me because I'm a female author. Um, I certainly had conversations with them about the way they were going to package the book and what it was going to look like, the American book, because uh, I am sensitive about getting stuck with a cover that's meant to apologize for the book or something and make it look more friendly uh, than it might be, which is not to say that it isn't a friendly book, but sometimes with women's books, you know, they'll put like an Adirondack chair on the cover or something. Um <laughs> But so I had a very heavy hand in what the American book looked like. With the British uh, edition, I didn't need to do that at all. They came up with this design, and I think it's completely strong, ungendered kind of design. And, okay, so why do I want a strong and ungendered design? Uh, I don't know, except that I, I've, I guess I'm coming to understand, based on the way my book's been received, that I do maybe write in a way that's not classically gendered, but maybe a lot of other women write in that way too, and we're just all pretending. 
um, that there are these milieu, like women's writing, and that it's very soft and domestic and about people making tea, uh, and that men's writing is, you know, um, about history and explosions and etc. Um, I don't know. I just write, you know, the way that I write, and I write based on what interests me. Um, and I think all people really are a range in terms of the gender spectrum. I mean, femininity is such a, it's this very learned thing. And like we learn it over the course of our lives and we keep learning it every moment. And that's fine. It's a kind of an art form and it, it can be great sometimes. I mean, just to let the men know if they've never experienced it. But uh, but there's a part of me that's not really like that at all. Um it's, and when you write, you get to be your real, true self. And you get to let other characters perform through you. And I think sometimes people forget when you read a book, like, I'm not the narrator. I'm all the characters in the book. I'm the bl- People keep saying the old men are bloviators, you know. Well, I'm those men, too. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I tried. There's one more in the back. Chairing <laughs> your own session. Hmm? I like the way you're like you know you're also chairing your own session. Oh well, I, just because I can see her. Hi. Oh, no, I, need my um, I just want to ask a probably quite selfish question. It's probably not that important, but somehow I was wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about the character stretch. Um, and that is just because it feels like it's such a small and brief character, but it seems to be just there um, a very sudden and very short-lived intimacy of, of a certain kind and I think there's a very beautiful line there where, where she says um, something along the lines that he said her name in a way that it really felt that he knew yeah. her in retrospect as, as, as she's driving back and yeah I mean it's so brief and it's so inconsequential somehow but it, it seems I'm just curious how you thought of that or why did you feel the need to create that somehow oh yeah you're the first person who ever asked about stretch i like that um can i I just say one more thing sorry sure i mean um, i'm not sure of the order of writing but it's just funny because just before reading a book i had read um chris Krause's summer of hate oh yeah stretch is the dog and it just seemed (laughs) oh i forgot about that she has a dog named (laughs) stretch it's a funny name and it's not that um common and somehow i was wondering if you actually were aware of that or yeah well i had written my book um uh, before I before Chris's book came out, so it's a coincidence. Um, you know, I like that you asked about that. Um, yeah, the, for anyone who hasn't read it, the narrator is driving through the western landscape, and she gets to the border between Nevada and Utah. And I don't name the town, but it's Bonneville, where the Bonneville salt flats are. Um, and all the motels are booked, and the one of the motel owners are creepy to her, and says, well, we might be able to accommodate you somehow. Why don't you and I go up the street to one of the casinos and have a drink? And we could talk about that. And then the uh, maintenance man at the motel, his name is Stretch, um, offers her to sleep in his room um, because he has to stay outside all night as a guard because um, it's speed week at the Bonneville Salt Flats where they run the land speed vehicles um, to make records. And... He doesn't do anything to her. He's very appropriate, uh, but he's sort of interested in her, and they have, like, a brief five-minute interlude, and then she goes on her way. I included the thing of her saying, he said my name like he thought he knew me, 
Is that the line? <laughs> Maybe you know better than I do. Um, Oh, right. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, when I was writing that, I was just thinking about, I don't know, like those brief moments when you're somewhere away from home and nobody knows you, you know, and you encounter somebody with whom kind of structurally you don't have that much in common, but you share a sort of intimacy just for five minutes or something. And there is a way in which some, once in a while someone can say your name. I mean, it's, you know, so much of attraction is projection, right? Or all of it um, so she was just thinking about that but then later I realized that it was a kind of formal little play on my part because she's unnamed so he says her name but we don't know it but um, it, like in full candor um, I did once meet a guy named Stretch and um, <laughs> he was a maintenance man at a motel um, in Bonneville and I was driving through there it's all true. Um, I had a 63 Impala, and I never should have sold that fucking car. Um, and uh, they were having Speed Week, and I didn't know it. This was so many years ago. I was a student, and um, all the motels were booked. And so that one little story did kind of happen to me. There was no place to stay, and I stopped at a motel. And I was you know, a young girl, early 20s. And the uh, motel owner's son was trying to get me to go have a drink with him. And I had been up for two days. My car had broken down in Nebraska. It was just, oh, my God. And uh, I really, really needed a place to sleep. Um, and he w- just wanted me to have a drink with him instead of, uh, like, helping me. And then the maintenance man, Stretch, offered me his room. And sometimes you just know when you're being offered real charity by a stranger uh, and you know that there's no danger and I just think it's so important in life to be open um, to those moments and it was a great one for me because he offered me his room and there were sandwiches and beer and um, his bed was very comfortable and he didn't come in the room until the morning just like in the book and it was really sweet so when I went back to Bonneville to do research for the book and I went to Speedweek and lurked around and watched um, people run it, racing vehicles, etc. I did kind of wonder about Stretch, but I didn't really want to find him again. Um, but that motel was closed down. Yeah, I'm fine. Is everybody else like dying sitting on the plastic seat? Um, I think again, it's quite a selfish um, question or like comment, but I really liked um, that Rena was a China girl in the book, or like I'd never heard of that before, and I just really liked the idea of that, and wondered if you had how that came into the book or if that's a real thing, even. Yeah, it's a real thing. Uh, she asked about the, did everybody hear that? Um, she asked about the China girls. Um, yeah, it's a real thing. The China girls were used on film later, um, up through the 1980s, um, and they're, they're put on the end of the film so that if a projectionist loads the film properly, you don't ever see her. If you do see her because they load it um, to you know with a piece of leader coming in early, uh, they just flash by very quickly because I think that 
either one frame or just a few frames. I don't know um, very much about film, but I'd seen images of them before. Uh, and there's a really beautiful film by um, kind of structuralist filmmaker named Morgan Fisher called Standard Gage, where he um, talks about the history of the China Girl. And um, I didn't know this actually, but the filmmaker James Benning, who um, I'm a huge fan of his work, had actually made a film about uh, China girls called Grand Opera in 1978, I think. But So people have always maybe been interested in them, and I always had, and they're mysterious because they are... Um, to the, they were typically secretaries who worked in the film labs who would then become models for an hour and pose either holding a Kodak color bar or then they would take the image and put a Kodak color bar next to the image. Sorry, I got sidetracked. And the purpose of these women is so that... Um, when they process the film, they can match um, film densities to make human skin look natural. Like when you're watching a film, you know, clothes can be any pitch or color, right? But you can see when skin is off. Although I should say that it, it's pretty much always white skin. And that kind of racist hierarchy is structured in the, to the, in the deepest way into cinema and television because everything is calibrated towards white faces, um, and people have written dissertations about this, but it's not that well known. Actually, there's a really good piece in The Guardian about that last year. Um, so people in England are on to this. Um, but uh, so, so that's what China Girls, the purpose that they serve, and it's just these anonymous women who do it, these secretaries. And um, when I looked into it, um, I heard that some of the guys in the film lab will collect little snippets of film with these women on them and even trade them like baseball cards because there's probably only like, you know, 50 or 100 of these images because you don't need a ton of them. It's, there are certain women who appear like on every leader, um, but nobody knows who they are. And so then I just started thinking about, I guess, fantasy and the imagination. And I don't name it at all in the book, but it to me it has a kind of pornographic element to it because, you know, for some people the real woman uh, is much more interesting than the staged one and they do have that allure that these are real women uh, but they're totally anonymous and there's no way to find out um, who they are and they also, they have the allure of the girl next door like they aren't perfect looking, they're just women who worked in film labs and so I was interested in that and then it seemed like um, it would be a fairly likely job for a young woman who moved to New York because uh, there were a lot of processing labs in New York City. And after I wrote it, a friend of mine who's a kind of pictures generation artist named Jennifer Bolandi wrote to me and said, I worked at a film lab on the Bowery. And so I thought that was kind of neat, but she wasn't actually a China girl. Um, but it was just something that was typically done in those film labs. Hi. Uh, Hi. You write really brilliantly about um, films of Chantal Ackerman and Barbara Lawden, and I think Bob Raffleson. And I just want to know, one, are you able to say who the filmmaker is who wrote to you? Because it doesn't surprise me that a filmmaker would write to you who wants to work with you. And also, would you like to write a book about film? Or if you had to choose a movie where you had to write a non-fiction book, what would it be? I said... Oh, it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I abs- I love uh, the films of Chantal Ackerman and the film of Barbara Loden. Um, yeah, these are really inspiring works to me. And so um, for anybody who doesn't know, there's a, basically a frame-by-frame description. I mean, I skip a lot of frames, but 
of the movie Wanda by Barbara Loden in my book. Um, and there's a still from the film that's in the book of the woman standing in front of a time clock uh, wearing hair curlers with a scarf over them. And then I also described uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, Jean Dillman, which I really think is an incredible masterpiece of a film. So I think about film a lot, and um, I write a lot of dialogue while I'm in movies. Um, I'm, I'm so embarrassed, because I don't mean to sound like boastful, because I don't even know if we'll do anything together, but the filmmaker is James Benning. Do you know his work? Uh, and I, wh- I was asked once to write um, a book that... I, there's a book series where a writer focuses on one film and you write a book-length kind of essay about that film. I thought about doing it, and then I just decided, you know, life is short, and I'm not that young, and I think novels are the thing I want to do and um, not really deviate from that and maybe just incorporate films into my novel or, you know, watch them and love them, um, but not, uh, you know, write analyses of films. Thank you very much for your questions. They were brilliant. Thank you, most of all, to Rachel Kushner and Nina Power. Please do stay around. Um, there's wine. There's books. Please do buy the book and read it if you haven't already. It's, you, know, you really have to. Um, yes, ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Kushner and Nina Power. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.